Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We have had read to us Genesis chapter 29. And the first 20 verses talking about Jacob and Rachel and the great love he had for her. And Song of Solomon chapter 2 about the spectacular marital romance that is described in that eight chapter book that's part of the divine library of the Bible. We read the whole thing. We haven't read Song of Solomon very often in our assemblies. And one of the chapters was assigned to you last night for your preparatory reading for today's worship. But it's part of the Bible. Part of the 1189 chapters of the Bible are those eight chapters about a spectacular husband-wife marital romantic relationship that is also a picture of Jesus Christ and His church. And you further heard the, the blueprint the specific instructions for husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Revelation chapter 2. Seven churches are here in these chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. This church was started by Paul. It's addressed here by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is in the red writing. I want two verses, verses 4 and 5 of Revelation 2. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Amen and amen. Amen. Waning love is a sin when God commands love. And he gives us a three-step rule that will restore love. The glorified Lord Jesus Christ gave the rule. It is absolute truth, and God has inspired it and preserved it to us. He had something against, frightening words they are, he had something against the church at Ephesus because they had left their first love. He threatened the church with severe consequences if they did not renew and refresh their love and restore it to its original luster and passion. In this context, it is from Jesus by the Holy Spirit for our personal and corporate love of Christ. Let there be no confusion or doubt. We are slaves to context, and context is only the love of Christ. But if the three, if the three step approach can restore love to Christ, it can restore marital love as well. That is arguing from the greater to the lesser, which is a Bible form of reasoning. And thus I start with a context that is about our love of Christ. And I take the principle of the rules of how to restore fallen love, dull love, boring love to first love in marriage. I could give you examples from the Bible, but I don't have time for that. They'll be in the outline. If you want to see that in the Bible, arguing is made from the greater to the lesser. There have been other sermons that have exhorted you to your love of Christ. This is your, this is to exhort you to your love of your spouse. Your first step to correct marital doldrums is to recognize and admit any waning love. If your love is less than it ever was before, then it's time for you to do a checkup and restore your love. You don't need a letter from Jesus, as His Word and your conscience should be sufficient. 
everyone here, most everyone here, or everyone here, is married to a child of God, and your love should match the Lord Jesus and His Word about that. It does not matter if you are doing many things well in your marriage. Ephesus was doing many things well as a church, nevertheless. Nevertheless, and if you were to read the rest of the exhortation and warning from Jesus to that church, He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. This is all in verse 2. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. He lists all these good things that they were doing, but because they had lost their passion, their doing of them was insufficient for him. And in marriage, just the doing of something is insufficient for what a marriage should be. It was not bare activity and bare service that was in Song of Solomon chapter 2, read a few minutes ago, or Song of Solomon 7, read last evening. It is passionately doing those things. Excitedly, eagerly, lovingly doing those things rather than just going through the motions. So notice that you can say, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing this in my marriage. So it's not good enough. You need to be doing it passionately, eagerly, obsessively, adoringly. Like uh, Jacob working for Rachel so that seven years would seem like just a few days to him. Love does not leave you. Anyone that thinks love happens to people and love can leave, do not understand love and their heretics when it comes to the Bible. Love is not a feeling. Love is not a chemical reaction. Lust is, but not love. Love is a choice and love is a chosen action toward another person. And so it says here that you have left thy first love. It didn't say love left you as so many want to think, well, I'm just not in love with my spouse anymore. That is a choice. That is your fault. It is your sin. You will give an account of it when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. The two sermons do work together. Jesus Christ is going to come. We will give an account of our lives, including our marital lives, to Him. Love does not leave. You stop loving. You left your first love. Let's just take a few minutes and exhort each other from the Word of God to restore stronger love back in our marriages. The status quo is unacceptable. It doesn't matter that you're comfortable with the way things are, and it doesn't matter if your spouse is comfortable, in your opinion, with the way things are. Something must be done to restore waning love when God has told us to love some object. Love is a choice. You are responsible for its decline, drabness, dullness, or deadness. You're responsible. Not your spouse. It's your responsibility for your love towards your spouse. The Bible is clear that you can direct your affections. Look at Colossians chapter 3, and let's remind ourselves of something the world doesn't understand, nor do they sing about. But love is a choice to treat another person a certain way. It is not a reaction when you see somebody that's good looking or somebody says something nice to you or does something kind for you and the feelings that you get out of that. Love is a chosen course of action toward another person and it needs to be done passionately and it can be done today passionately simply by a choice. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Of course, that again is talking about Christ, but if it works, if it works for a mere man to be able to set his affection on the Lord Jesus Christ, then he can easily do that toward his wife, and a wife is easily able to do it toward her husband. Love is not something that happens to you. Love is a choice to treat another person a certain way. But it should be done passionately, not just in dull, perfunctory performances. It should be done eagerly and romantically and adoringly. As Song of Solomon describes repeatedly, love, lust is what happens to people. Love is not lust, or lust is not love except to a whore. Revelate, Proverbs chapter 7, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 18 of the words of a whore in Solomon's lengthy parable of a young man being seduced by an adulteress. And one of her lines to him is in verse 18, Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with love. That's a whore. All she knows is lust. There's no love involved because love can't be in adultery. It's impossible for adultery to occur because of love occurring. That is not, it's impossible. It's just lust. Love doesn't do what is wrong with another person or toward another person. It only does what is right toward or with another person. So it is lust. But you, they can call it whatever they want. It's what the Bible calls it that counts. If you think love is outside and happens to people, you're quite deceived and you're, you're lost on the subject. The rule has three parts or steps that we saw there in Revelation 2.5, and we want to learn them. If you fear God, you have a duty. If you fear God today, you have a duty, you should fear meeting Him, and you will make changes today to push your marital love back toward that first love that you had when you were pursuing your spouse. In Revelation 2.5, it gave us a three-step approach. Remember, repent, and do the first works. Many of you have heard these things before. Some of you have not heard them before. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 2.5. I am taking the principle and applying it to marital love. I am arguing from the greater responsibility of loving Christ to the lesser of loving your marital spouse. Remember, you should recall what it was like in the beginning when you were madly in love with the person that you married. If you cannot remember or you think things are okay, then measure yourself against the Bible. As a brother that just read Song of Solomon 2 said, it's convicting and condemning sometimes to go into the Song of Solomon and realize, oh, this is how God thinks a husband and a wife should treat each other. Marriages do grow cold and old and stale and boring or perfunctory in comparison to the start, and that inertia is what we want to arrest and redirect. The inertia of marriage is toward boreness, boringness, or dullness. And we want to stop that because the Lord expects us to have passionate marriages like He passionately loves us. Bitterness, coldness, fear, habits, hopelessness, walls that you put up do creep or rush into marriages. And we want to stop them by a choice from this principle of the Bible that we should remember what it was like at its best. We should repent that we're not there right now. And we should do whatever it takes to get back there. The first works. Spouses understand how loss of love and passion dulls any actions. 
You know, mannequin sex is not very romantic lovemaking. Every one of you know the difference. We know the difference when our children obey us grudgingly, and children know the difference when parents listen to them distantly. It's the lack of passion in the matter. And passion makes all the difference in the world. Passion and a smiling face and true eagerness and love coming out of your eyes can make up for any physical deformity or physical lack or technical incompetence. It's passion. Passion makes all the difference. First love is not so much just returning to specific acts as it is restoring your affection and commitment, emphasis, energy, motivation, priority, sacrifice, and zeal for the other person. So, you remember, you look back and say, yeah, we've slipped a little bit. We're, we've sort of fallen into our habits. We're like two people living at the same address. Yeah, we sleep in the same bed. Yeah, we have sex every now and then. But we've really lost that passion for each other. Let's use this second service to renew it. So that we can be more pleasing to the Lord. So that we can have better marriages. Life is too short not to live with passion. Uh, life is too short to uh, have a woman in the house and uh, not be fully enjoying her as you help her fully enjoy you and life. Right. Oh, it's, it's just a wonderful circle once you get it started. And you know where I'm going to put the burden, guys. We're not going to sit around and wait for our wives to get it started. The husband has to do it. The husband should be the leader. And uh, a woman's a responder. And if a husband would uh, remember, repent, and do the first works, she'll come alive. You know, she's like a flower. And if you deprive her of sunshine and rain and put her in shallow, poor soil, she's not going to be very pretty and she's not going to have very many blossoms and she's not going to smell very good. But if you put her in good soil and give her the rain and the sunshine, she'll respond and your wife will respond. That's the way the Lord's made it. Um, for the men that want to sit around and wait for their wives to do it, they maybe they should join LGBT and get themselves a man so that they can have an initiator. I'm sorry to say it so bluntly and terribly and harshly, but uh, you know every man likes some initiative on the part of the wife, but uh, let's get first things first. If you show her how exciting it can be, she can always whip you in the matter that I'm referring to right now, and she will come after you if you've made it secure and peaceful, loving, exciting, and passionate for her to come after you. Let's remember... Let's repent. Job 33 is not too many pages away from Proverbs 7. Job 33 is one of my favorite expressions of how to confess sin found in the Bible. And so the the next thing we got to do is identify and repudiate the things that are wrong. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a pretty powerful word, and it makes all the difference in the world. Repentance is to identify and repudiate things that you are doing wrong and devote yourself to fully do them right. That's what it is. It's a severe word. It's a strong word. Here's how Elihu explained it. Job 33 and verse 27. Let's say this about our marriages to the degree that we have let them slide. God, verse 27, He, that is God, looketh upon men. And if any say... I have sinned and perverted that which was right and it profited me not. He will deliver his soul from going into the pit and his life shall see the light. 
I want a light switch to be turned on in every one of your homes, every one of your hearts, and it is accomplished by remembering from what you've fallen, and if you think you haven't fallen very far because you were never very high, then look into the Bible and see how you have fallen from God's standard of a hot marriage relationship, and you say, I have sinned, Lord, I'm wrong. I have not loved my spouse the way that you teach me to in the Bible. I have perverted that which was right. I have not made marriage what it should be, and it didn't profit me. I truly am disappointed in what I've ended up with as my marriage. And when a person does that three-step approach, God is going to be there, and He's going to turn the light on in your life. Remember, repent. You first of all do it to the Lord. I have sinned. And you're saying that to the Lord, I have perverted that which was right, Lord, and it didn't profit me, Lord. I have ended up on the short end of the stick because I didn't do it your way. Then you tell your spouse. Then you tell your spouse. You confess it to your spouse. Husbands, if you're thinking to yourself, that sign of weakness would be too great for me. I wouldn't want to give my authority away by confessing to my wife. You don't have any authority if you can't do that. She already disrespects you. Humble yourself and confess your faults to your wife. You will be setting a standard of righteousness and passion in your marriage that is very high. It will turn to your benefit because it is the right thing to do. She'll respect you more for confessing that you're wrong in the marriage than if you don't confess that you're wrong, which she already knows because she sits in this church where she hears the Bible preached. So she already knows that you're wrong, so why not admit it? That way you can clear the deck. You know, a previous president got caught, and if he'd have just come clean with the whole nation, they'd have forgiven him in five minutes. They already knew he was at fault. Okay. Clearing the air of bitterness, of a cold war, of resentment, or of walls is incredibly therapeutic if you'll do it. I know that some of you have been raised in homes where there was Cold War all the time and your parents never really passionately loved each other and you saw lots of trouble and some of you have been in homes where there was divorces and this and that. It doesn't matter. This is the Bible. This is the standard. It can be better. Let's make it better. Remember, repent, and do the first works. Emphasize the doing. Jesus said, do the first works. The things that you did when you first heard about me and were first converted, go back to doing those things. When you wanted to pray a lot and read the Bible a lot and hear sermons a lot and think upon Christ and love Christ and be beaten down and broken for your sins and realize that there was grace to cover all your sins and the embrace of His arms, the love of a Savior is what is is being pursued in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus stands at the door and knocks and you should... Do the first works to get that back. And I have preached extensive, slow, careful sermons on this subject. And they were done in the fall of 2013 with PowerPoint slides on Sunday, which was rare for me to ever do because I wanted you to know that it's the most important relationship you have. But right now it's with your spouse. First works... From in a marriage are the desperate, diligent, eager, and excited attitude and desire to please someone. 
Oh, you wanted to please them and make them happy. Oh, you wanted to beat them to the punch and do something good for them before they did something good for you. Because you were passionately pursuing them and loving them and wanting to please them was more important than you getting pleasure from them, hopefully. First works is cheerful zeal to do anything and everything to perfectly satisfy another person. First works are loving kindnesses you showed your spouse in the beginning of your love. First works are initiating something. You're not waiting for your spouse. You want to win your spouse, please your spouse, and be right out there with your love. You say, but what if I get hurt? Then you don't know how to love. All love involves hurt when it involves another human being. It doesn't matter. If you're holding on, if you're protecting yourself, it just means you're selfish. You're never going to be happy. Real happiness is loving. It's not being loved. It's loving. Oh, I have more to say on that if that clock will just slow down and go backward 10 degrees like the sundial of Ahaz in the days of Hezekiah. Extraction team, just hold on. I'll make it up to you some way. First works are sacrificial actions and investments of love to cause joy in a spouse. Let me say that again. First works are sacrificial actions on your part and investments of love to cause joy in a spouse. How do you renew? Do. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it so much, but words are part of it. Do. Flush your dead and dull habits and pretend you're wooing her or him for the first time. Is there motivation for this? God commands us to have passionate marriages. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Can I set the standard any higher? Impossible. That's that's the motivation for you. Our love must be passionate and ravishing, free of impediments. Look at Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 19. One of the verses in the Bible that should convict men and exhort men. Proverbs 5.19 And women should be thankful that this is in the book of Proverbs. I know they, they sometimes get a little discouraged by chapter 31 that lists the virtuous woman and sets the bar so high it seems that it's impossible to achieve. Yet there are warnings like this in the book for men. Proverbs 5.19 Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. That is a pet small deer. Let your wife be like the loving hind and pleasant roe, let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Notice, there are three clauses, there are three imperative constructions, meaning those verbs every man can do. Every man can do. Every man can choose for his wife to be like a pet deer to him. Every man can be satisfied with his wife's anatomy, no matter what that anatomy is, and every husband can be satisfied, not satisfied, ravished with her lovemaking. Because it is a choice. And the choice is to remember how exciting it was at the beginning, to repent that it's still not that way, and to do the first works in whatever way we can to restore that. A husband's love must be cherishing, nourishing, and honoring, as read to us from Ephesians 5. A husband's love is to be sacrificial and costly, like we heard from Ephesians 5. A wife's love should be ravishing, reverential, and sexual, 
as we can read in various places in the Bible. You heard reverence from Ephesians 5.33 that was read to us. It's ravishing right here because in order for him to be ravished, she's got to be doing the ravishing. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 through 5, it says that lovemaking or sex, and it's defined very carefully, and there it is described as the spouse does not have the authority, power, right, or privilege of their own body, but the person they're married to. The person that you're married to has the privilege, the right, the authority to your body whenever, however, how often ever, wherever your spouse wants it. And that is the cure against fornication or adultery according to that passage. And Paul comes out in those five verses and says those things that you don't have the authority of your body, but your spouse, so you should be giving your body to your spouse the way your spouse wants it, when your spouse wants it, where your spouse wants it, as often as your spouse wants it, in the way that your spouse desires it. So it's all giving. And, and if both parties are doing that in a marriage, according to the sexual part of marriage, in 1 Corinthians 7, where it's defined so plainly, it's wonderful. Let's get back there, if you're not there. A wife's love must be sacrificial. Your desire shall be his. Genesis 3.16 It should be submissive. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Proverbs 31.12 and she will love her husband and obey him. So it's sub- submissive and total in Titus chapter 2. God's commandment is found clearly and repeatedly in the Bible about how we should love our spouses. Compromise here can cause God to resist you in your life. Right. If a husband does not love his wife the way he should, First Peter 3, seven says your prayers will be hindered. The paint will stop your prayers. They will not get to heaven. 1 Peter 3, 7, Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, describes it as treachery within a marriage, treachery where you're not fulfilling what God expects you to toward each other and that you promised each other before and when you got married. It's called treachery. And God says, when women are praying to me and they are crying, I see their tears and I will avenge them on their husbands who are causing their disappointment, frustration in the marriage. The level of romance, pleasure, and obsession is indicated pretty fairly in the Song of Solomon. Why should we use anything less? Well, we've just got into a habit. We'll get out of that habit and start new habits. Let's be like the Song of Solomon. What's it in the Bible for? I mean, most people, it should almost be stuck in as an appendix. We've got a 65-book Bible, and somewhere back there in the dictionary and concordance is the Song of Solomon. No, it's part of the text. Listen, other than our relationship with the Lord, while you're on earth, what's described in the Song of Solomon is as good as it gets. Right. A hot marriage between a loving husband and wife is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the Bible describes it that way. That's why I had, you, had it read to you about Jacob and Rachel. And being ravished with her love, ravished. I mean, ravished. Here's this wife just taking you down. And just don't take that too literally, but take it literally. Taking you down and destroying you and taking you over. Be thou ravished always with her love. Wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for using such such words in the Bible. 
You know, the Bible says, now listen, men. The Bible says, if you love your wife the right way, you are loving yourself. Because when that flower blooms and you get to look at its petals and touch its petals and smell its aroma, you are the benefactor of loving your wife sacrificially like Jesus Christ did. That's why he said, no man has ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it. And we take such good care of our bodies, but you should do that for your wife because you get the benefit back. And some people will say, well, that is such a corrupt motive. Oh, no, women. It's the strongest motive there is, other than doing it for the Lord's sake. And you know I've already said that. So when you're doing it for the Lord's sake, and you're doing it for your own selfish sake, that's the strongest motivation there is. You can go ahead and put that little note in your husband's lunch for tomorrow. No man ever yet hated his own flesh. And he that loveth his wife loveth himself. That is profound wisdom. Because if you love your wife for the investment you put in her, you will get it back. Check the math. Check the math. A woman is a responder. If you will invest in her, the response you get back will equal or exceed what you put in. Now, if you're married to a Christian woman that is sitting here beside you or near you, making you very uncomfortable right now, that is better math. It's better math. It's what we call higher math. Because the investment in that woman, if it's done right, where you make that woman feel so secure, so loved, uncriticized, appreciated, adored, physically wonderful in appearance and performance, if you just keep loving her and doing things for her and building her up, (laughs) she can bury you whenever she chooses to. Oh, That is how we want to love them. The Bible says, if you love your wife, you're loving yourself. That's good motivation for men. Now look in Acts chapter 20 at some red writing in a black print book. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. This is the motivation. Extraction team, be patient. I'm the one hurting the most. I'm sorry. Acts 20 and verse 35. Paul wrote, and you see some red words in this verse, if you have a red letter edition Bible, I have showed you all things. These are the elders of the church of Ephesus, the same church from Revelation 2, that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is a rule and an axiom of the Bible. This is a rule of life. There is more pleasure in giving than there is in receiving. I have tried to teach you that many times. It applies to marriage as well. Only atheists that deny God and deny the Word of God would deny this law. This law is the greater pleasure comes from loving another person rather than being loved by that person. If you ever fully grasp this law of Christ, it is more fun to love than to be loved. Now, what if both parts of a marriage, the husband and the wife, were sitting there thinking, you know what? I believe that. I'm going to go home and try that. They'll be on vacation next weekend. We won't see them here. You know, I'd like to come and be the only one here, but I'd be on one myself. (laughs) This this point is so important, and it is so opposite what the flesh tells a person, and especially men, especially men, 
think that they have to be getting in order to be happy, but when they give according to the law of the Savior and according to the law of experience, it brings their great happiness. Investments in another will very quickly, if not immediately, bring good feelings. If you will just go do something nice for someone and go say something nice to them, it immediately brings good feelings. Because it works. It is more blessed to give than to receive. A Christian should be the best and easiest servant, and this is much of marriage. Hey, even if you consider your spouse your enemy, this is still the way to heap coals of fire on their head. I hate to have to stoop to that motivation. <laughs> Life is too short. Right. Life is too disappointing to live it without all the pleasure of proper marital love. When the Lord comes, it's likely that you're not going to be in church. Now, I know that we would like to be singing, Oh, Lord Jesus, how long, how long, and the Lord comes. It's very unlikely that you're going to be in church when the Lord comes, but it's very likely that you're going to be married when He comes. Is that any motivation? What was it like? Remember the excitement, the intensity. Hear these words. Obsession, tirelessness, sacrifice, other first ideas, quick forgiveness. Oh, you, oh, don't worry about that. Oh, that's not a problem. You are so forgiving. Even I could be forgiving. What do I need to say to communicate that to you? Blindness. We love blindness. We were blind to their faults. We chose to be blind to their faults. We didn't want to see any faults. I will do anything type of attitude. I'll do anything to get that person, love that person, make that person happy, spend the rest of my life with that person, doting on that person. This is what it was like. A glimpse of the other was nearly magical. And I don't like using that word. A look and a smile from the other was precious. You willingly, eagerly, unconditionally rejected all others for your spouse. You made the choice. The innate drive to seduce or win another person for companionship and intimate love of marriage, coupled with your Christian character, is the ultimate service toward another person. But marital inertia just keeps pushing. Marital inertia pushes from a for you stage of love to a I need, I want, I have my own life. Marriage. And that stinks. How do you do it? It's easy. Do the first works. Get excited again. You say, I just don't feel excited. What does that have to do with it? Feelings are not love. Feelings are lust. What are you talking about? You haven't felt unselfish in the last two years? What are you talking about? I just don't feel like it anymore. God doesn't care if you feel like it or not. Do you think he told the church at Ephesus? If you feel like it, I'd like you to restore your first love. Or did he say, repent and do the first works? It's a choice. I'm not making fun of feelings. I'm telling you where to put the feelings, and they're after love. If they're in front, it's not love, it's lust. Because love is a conscious choice of activity and action and performance toward a person without feelings waiting for those feelings, doing them without those feelings. You know what Jesus' feelings were in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
Father, if this cup could pass from me, I'd prefer that. But he went and did it. And he saw his seed when he was on the cross. And he saw the joy that was set before him. And now he's realizing all the benefits. Don't wait for those feelings. The means are to go back. Attitude alone won't work. There's got to be action. Actions alone won't work because they need to be done passionately. And we've all been there before when things have been done by our spouse that weren't mixed with passion and romance, and then it was just perfunctory, and that's disappointing and and even offensive when your spouse does something towards you just out of a sense of obligation. You want to do it out of a sense of, I love you. Words are powerful. The Bible tells about Shechem, how he seduced Dinah. He spoke kindly to her. Are your words kind to your spouse? Always kind to your spouse? Always forgiving, patient, overlooking, encouraging, gentle, providing security, peace, warmth. Shechem knew how to do it, and he was a pagan. Use words. The Bible says there is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword. Well, if you use that at home, you're not fulfilling what the Bible wants you to use. You're not cherishing and nourishing your wife. You're not cherishing and nourishing your husband. A wife by far should never, ever think, speak, mumble, moan, groan, or make any body language sign tossing of her head of disrespect toward her Lord because her husband is her Lord. When she meets the Lord Jesus Christ, she will wish that there was no male sex in this universe, including the Lord Jesus Christ. Good words are so powerful. The book of Proverbs, Solomon warns his son about the danger of harlots, whores, adulteresses on the smoothness of their words, that their words are like butter and honey. And those words seduce men and overpower men. Now if a whore can do that, what about a Christian wife of a husband that's sitting in this assembly right now? Words can be wonderful. There's no way David could have resisted Abigail's, Abigail's incredible choice of words. When you read 1 Samuel 25 and you read how Abigail approached David when he was furious, she melted his heart by taking the weak position and reminding him of his duties in a gentle, submissive way. She not only stopped his anger, preserved Nabal's life, she got proposition for marriage just a few days later because she totally won David. And a woman can do that. Ladies, fearing God trumps looks and favor according to Proverbs 31.30, but you should use all three. Perfunctory performance doesn't cut it. Passionate doting of paramours wins all. And doting and paramours are Bible words from French and Latin for love and lovers. And doting is all those little special, unnecessary things that you do towards someone that you're trying to win. What hinders it? Waiting for a spouse to do it first. Well, if my husband, if my husband loved me more, I would submit more. What part of hell did you come from? That doesn't have a thing to do with it. How could you even get those words out of your mouth? Here's Jesus on the cross. Here's Jesus approaching the cross. If these people would just love me and stop sinning, I would die for them. It's 
It's blasphemous. It's so ridiculous. When my husband loves me more, I'll submit more. The husband says, when the wife, when she'll show me a little bit of initiative and come and, and jump me when I come home from work, well, then I'll show her a little bit of love and initiative. You selfish animal beast. You don't deserve a wife. So, one of the hindrances is waiting for a spouse. That's not first works. That is second works. You had to be first when you wanted to get her. You were first. She didn't ask you for flowers. You came up with the idea, big boy. You came up with the idea. You did it. We can do this. We want to do it. We want to do it for the Lord's sake. If you wait to be a responder, you could only win a loser. And you displease God in the meantime. God doesn't care about your spouse's conduct. He demands your love towards your spouse. Those that put conditions on God's Word of their spouse's conduct are wicked. Let's love our spouse no matter what. That's how we win them. That's how we please God. And it's going to make you the happiest. That is win, win, win. To love your spouse no matter how they respond. You please God... You please yourself because it is more blessed to give than to receive, and you stand the highest probability of winning your spouse by initiating the love toward them. It's win, 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 doing it God's way. I'm sorry that some of you have had bad home examples, and and it's the majority of any group of people did not have good examples of Christian love between a husband and a wife. Waiting for feelings is to drive action to lust, You don't wait for feelings. You do what is right, and the feelings will come, and they'll be godly feelings. What have you allowed to creep into your marriage that God condemns or ignores? Look at, look at Colossians chapter three about where it's, where husbands are addressed. Where husbands are addressed, Colossians chapter three and verse 19. What impediments have you allowed to creep in to your marriage, to your heart, or between you and your spouse? Is it bitterness? Here's the rule. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. So there's a positive and there's a negative. Love your wives. Don't let bitterness... What is bitterness? The pain and consequences of unresolved offense or conflict at some previous time. Bitterness, let me repeat that, is the pain and walls that go up because you didn't resolve some offense that occurred earlier and you're holding on to the stinking grudge. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. It's an order. So the hindrances are, you know, bitterness gets in there. We want to blow it out. If you've built a wall of bitterness that colors everything about your spouse, you need to tear it down. If you have fear, you haven't learned to take risks, and love takes risks. It's willing to expose itself for the benefit of another just like the Lord did for you. If you are hopeless, thinking it won't work, my marriage is hopeless, you forget that God is watching and He will bless and your efforts towards your spouse could well work if you would do them scripturally with your whole heart. Because I believe the Bible. I believe it as much about this matter as I do about creation. What if a, what if a spouse responds less than you would hope for? A simple response to that. A simple solution. What if a spouse responds less than you would hope for? Repeat your perfect performance. 
eventually your perfect performance will win. You say, I've never performed perfectly. Thank you for getting my point. If your marriage was not very hot to start, it just means that you were sinning from the beginning. Love the one you're with. Some of you were on a couple's retreat with me years ago when I used this as our theme. Love the one you're with. The world uses that to mean fornicate with whoever's nearest. We use it to mean several things. The spouse that we have is by God's providence and arrangement of circumstances that he purposed before the world began. They are the one out of the whole earth's population that God wanted for us. And you agreed with God in the beginning because you said, I do. Okay? So we've got these spouses that we have. Love the one you're with very, very quickly. Two people on an island, Robert and Kelly, though very different, Robert in his 50s, having been on the plane because he was celebrating 25 years with his deceased wife, and Kelly, a wild, man-hating, international saleswoman, are the only survivors of a plane wreck in the South Pacific. And there are two people on a little island. They have a need to help each other survive. There is no one else for them to even think about. So they choose to invest in each other to survive, and they end up loving each other. And when they're rescued five years later, they are madly in love and have no thought of separating and have two children. You say, but there wasn't a priest there to marry him. I didn't know that there was a priest present in any marriage that ever took place in the Bible. Come on. How does that happen? How could that happen? Because there were no other options and they needed each other for survival, success, romance, and pleasure. Well, that's exactly what's facing every one of you right now. There is no other option because you're married by God's providential choice of who you're married to. And if you would just get over any other thought of what it could have been or what it should have been and make it what God wants it to be, it'll be better than all of your little foolish fantasies. You are stranded with your spouse and it can be as much fun as you want it to be. The lack of options, either real or imagined, bring both face to face to have love. Need and no other options can generate love by the mutual investment in each other, which is what it did for those two in the example. You say, where did anything happen like that in the Bible? Okay, Isaac and Rebekah. An arranged marriage where the young woman was given to a stranger like Isaac. Did Rebekah meet Isaac? No. Did it matter to Rebekah that she had never met Isaac? Not at all. As soon as she saw Isaac in a field, she jumped off her camel, put her veil on, and went to meet him. That was as seductive as it got in those days, and that was heavy seduction. She jumped off her, she said, hey, hey, Abraham's master, who is that guy out there walking in the field? That's my master Isaac. Really? She jumps off her camel, puts her veil on, and goes and meets him, And it says they went into her mother's tent and Isaac didn't remember his mother Sarah anymore. Okay, that's that's Jonathan's paraphrase. 
uh, and you say, that is wild. Did it really happen that way? Yes! It happened that way. And so, love the one you're with. An arranged marriage was a wonderful way to get together with someone. Instead of all this fantasy foolishness of dating, all of a sudden, you're in a house, and there's no one else, and you're married. Now, how retarded is the guy going to be? His whole future depends on him being kind of nice to her. She's scared out of her mind. She's got a suitcase there in the middle of the living room, And she's standing beside it. Where is he? What's he going to want first? You know, and so in, oh, I had so much fun with this at a couple, it's so true. It's the way they did it in the Bible. Dating stinks. Dating creates an illusionary experience for little short periods of time with someone that is not like marriage. And then you get into marriage and you think that marriage is just going to be those illusionary periods of time plus sex. It should be perfect. And it turns out that it's very disappointing. When Abijam comes around the corner and sees the poor girl standing with her suitcase in the middle of the house, what is he thinking about? He is going to be careful and he's going to win her because he knows that there's this verse in the Bible. I love our God. And I love all 31,101 verses of a King James Bible. Deuteronomy 24.5 says that a husband cannot be charged with business or war in the first year of marriage because he is supposed to stay at home and cheer up his wife. On the inside of marriage, not taking her bowling or river rafting, not married, and creating all the sexual frustration that that creates, but inside marriage, for one year, he is not to be charged with anything off his property. Off his property, He is to stay at home and cheer up his wife. What a wonderful way to do it! You say, that does sound cool! Have a great afternoon. It's the way to do it. That man is going to I need to cheer her up. She's scared. Dad told me that a scared woman uh, doesn't work too well. He told me that fear and pain are the two greatest deterrents to pleasure. I'm going to take her for a walk. Forget that bedroom. I'm going to take her for a walk. We'll go walk around the property. Anyway, you can just take that wherever you want to. He would be wise He would invest in her. Adam and Eve did it that way. Had Eve ever met Adam before she was married to him? All spouses, here's here's another point about love the one you're with. All spouses can seduce or win the other sex. All spouses can seduce or win the other sex. They did it once to get you. And they could do it again if you died. This fact is very condemning about all of us. For it means a boring marriage is your choice of cruel hatred. All men are Shechem before marriage. Mostly are selfish and withhold kind words after marriage. Young men at home for a year, they were not waiting for something. They were creating something. A cheerful, happy wife. Anyone can create love. Sacrificial desire and effort to please and profit another person. Everyone in here knows how to get, win, please, 
a person of the opposite sex. I'm repeating myself. Therefore, if your marriage is boring and not all that it should be, it's because you are not doing what you can and instinctively, innately would do if you were put back in the market. Therefore, it is a cruel choice of hatred. Seduction is inborn for necessity. What keeps you from doing it towards your spouse? Confess the sin. You know, a marriage with baggage, um, bitterness, disappointment, pain, and walls can be restored the way I've described today. Remember, repent, and do the first works. The Lord is pleased, you'll be pleased, and you'll win your spouse and they'll be pleased. That's just win, win, win. Every way you look at it, it's wonderful. God did it with Israel. I could take you to Jeremiah 3 and show how God did it with Israel in a way that men do not do. God did it with Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16. It takes two persons with godly repentance who will fulfill their roles scripturally to have a hot marriage, and your marriages can be hot before it's 6 o'clock tonight. It's a choice. It's a choice. It's so simple to do it. Both spouses know exactly how if they would just do it toward each other. God would not have told men to cheer up their wives unless it was very probable to do. God would not have told men to be satisfied or ravished with their wives unless a man can do that. And a woman can do that. Strong men have been seduced by strange women, according to Proverbs 7.26. What about a good wife who's on that island at your address this afternoon? A wise woman will say, the other woman, thinking of adultery, a wise woman will say, the other woman always has the advantage over the wife. And that's why it says what it says in the book of Proverbs. A wiser woman will say, with a Christian husband, I can whip any other woman. How do you regain hunger for what you didn't have when you have it? When you don't have something and you're hungry, and then you get that thing, how do you regain hunger for what you didn't have when you have it? Because that's a lot of what we're talking about. You choose to make it your favorite. What if there were no other women except your wife married to you? Would she all of a sudden change in value to you? She is the only woman. She she is the only woman for you. Treat your wife as if she were the other person marooned on a South Pacific island with you. That's how you regain your hunger. Shopping in a cycle shop, a motorcycle shop, or shopping in a car lot is foolish and wrong if you've already bought. And all of you married men have already bought. So why would you go to a car lot and look at any other models? Take your model and learn everything about it. Slant the evidence in its favor. Turn a blind eye to its faults and make it the most fantastic, unique motorcycle or car in the world. Sell it to yourself. Have you ever done that with anything else? It can be done. Do the first works. Don't wait for them. Don't feel. Love is action based on the math. I've explained the math. Put your spouse first, even what seems sacrificially, the, our sin nature says, if I, if I love my spouse sacrificially, that means I'm giving up for their benefit. That means I'm the net loser. You know, I have the same flesh. But that's just wrong. In the Bible, it's wrong. God doesn't want you to wait for that. God just wants you to give sacrificially anyway. You'll be happy in doing it 
So God and you are now happy, and your spouse will like it. All three of you will be happy, and it's the best way for it to come back to you God's way. By being here today, you are responsible before God, your spouse, your children, and us to be great spouses. God is too good. His coming judgment is too real. Life is too short. Love is too sweet to miss it. Let's remember the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and be found of Him with the best marriages possible. Hot, passionate, romantic, fulfilling all parts of the Bible in all respects. Everyone wins. And I did this for the Lord Jesus Christ.